invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn with me again, as you did last week, to Lamentations 3, this time beginning in verse 23, excuse me, 26. We considered the first 25 verses of Lamentations 3 last week. And as we focused on these first 25 verses, we directed our attention specifically toward the danger of allowing our lives to be driven by emotions, by feelings, and by perceptions. We emphasized the need to trust what we know to be true, even above what we might feel to be true or, or even perceive to be true. It was a call to live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And this necessitates a fundamental mindset shift as it relates to the way that we perceive this life. We saw an example, we saw several examples of this, in fact, through Scripture, not just through the prophet Jeremiah as he mourned and he wept for his people, and then he, he despaired in a manner of speaking of God and of his faithfulness only to remember the Lord, only to remember his goodness, only to recall to his mind and therefore have hope that it is of the Lord's mercies that he is not consumed because his compassions fail not. Then we went to Job and we saw Job in the midst of his confusion as to God. In Job 23, where is God? I cannot find God. He says that he does not know where he is, yet he knoweth the way that I take, Job said, and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Then we went to Psalm 77, where the psalmist is so troubled, he said he can't even speak. And then as he asked those questions, has the Lord forgotten to be merciful? Has the Lord cast off forever? He says, but I will remember the Lord. I will remember the days of the right hand of my God. I will remember the days of his power. I will remember the days of his faithfulness. And I will allow what I know of my Lord to overcome even what I'm feeling or perceiving at this moment. I will allow my life to be filtered through the lens of God's faithfulness. And then, of course, we went to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. As he wrestled with this thorn in the flesh and besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from him, only to hear the Lord say, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And David, or Paul there not only says, okay, I need to have a fundamental mindset shift as it relates to the Lord's faithfulness, the Lord is faithful in this, but Paul says, much more than that, I will then glory in my infirmity. I will take pleasure in that which was my thorn in the flesh because it is in that weakness that I'm made strong through the Lord. And so we sought to direct our heart to this truth, that sometimes our feelings, sometimes our perceptions, sometimes even our senses are acting to divert us from truth, from the truths that we know only from the Word of God, that anchor, that sole exclusive anchor that we hold on to in this life, the only means by which we can properly orient ourselves to the emotions that we're feeling, rooted in the Word of God, the promises of God, the character of God, that which we know from the Word of God about God Himself and the way things work in this world. If we could grasp a hold of that concept, it would change the way we see sin. For that which our flesh tells us is pleasure, the Word of God tells us is damage. But that's only as we trust what we know from the Word of God to be true above that which we feel. That which the world tells us is advantage, the world tells us is stripping us from the Lord. And only as we see through the lens of the Word of God are we able to take what we know and, and it supersede what we see with our eyes. And that's what we sought to grab a hold of last week. Well, this week we continue in this climactic portion of the book of Lamentations. The chiastic structure where the entire book is pointing its way toward this centralized idea in Lamentations 3. And in this third lamentation, Jeremiah extols God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness that drew Jeremiah to trust what he knew above what he felt. And this week, we are going to observe the manner of God's faithfulness in the midst of judgment. 
by God's grace, this will help us understand that the judgment of God, the chastening hand of God, the trials of God, the difficulties that we go through in this life are as much a reflection of God's faithfulness as are His blessings. And this is another mindset shift which we are called to have rooted in the teachings of God's Word. So Jeremiah has just refocused his mind, if you recall. He was struggling. He was confused. He did not understand what the Lord was doing. He felt as though he had a target on his back. And not only that the Lord had put a target on his back and that he had drawn the arrows, but remember, he felt as though the Lord had let go of those arrows and that they had pierced him. He was confused. He was weary. He was tired. And he felt as though God was targeting him. And then he had that mindset shift. And we pick up for a re recollection of our context in verse 21. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore, will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. This is a very significant shift within this chapter from the sorrow and the pain which Jeremiah was experiencing, the feelings of despair and of separation from the Lord, to where Jeremiah says through his pain that he remembers the Lord's faithfulness. That he can, in the midst of his pain, not despair, not lose sight, not stumble and fall, because he knows, though he may not understand it all, he knows beyond what he feels, he knows beyond what his perceptions tell him that God is faithful. And what is this faithfulness? You say, okay, God is faithful and that's a really wonderful thought. And we could go to almost anyone and we could say, yes, God is faithful in the midst of those hard times. But what is fascinating about Jeremiah's exaltations and expressions of God's faithfulness is that his expressions of God's faithfulness are not rooted in God taking away the suffering. In fact, the expressions of Jeremiah's faith in God's faithfulness, his exaltation in God's faithfulness, is in fact the chastening of God himself, uh, itself. So we read in verse 26, It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. The faithfulness of which Jeremiah speaks is the process of sorrow through which he was going. Wow. What a thought. Jeremiah says it's good that a man should hope. Quietly wait. It is good. It's a good thing that God does not rescue us from our sorrows at first whimper. Like a good parent who will identify those situations in their child's life where their child is in a difficult spot, but which they decide, I'm not going to rescue my child from this right away. The parent will consciously choose not to help that child so that the child can learn something. Maybe the lesson that that child needs to learn is you should have obeyed mom and dad. You should have listened when I told you not to do that. And now you're stuck there because I told you not to do that. And now you have this consequence upon you and I'm not going to rescue it for, it, you from it right away because you need to contemplate what happened by not following mom and dad. Maybe it's simply to help your child get stronger. I was, um, this summer, we were, my family was in San Antonio with the rest of my family, my parents and my sister and, and uh, my two sisters and their kids and their husbands and such. And we were in the pool and there was a pool there at the house that we were in, uh, San Antonio. It was very hot. And um, at a certain point, one of my nieces uh, was struggling in the pool. And I looked at that and I asked one of my daughters, would you go help her? And my father, who uh, lives nearby, um, his, his granddaughter there, uh, said, no, 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 girls, don't help her. She's okay. She's not going to get hurt. And she needs to learn how to do this. 
Well, that's something that a good parent will do from time to time, right? I'm not going to help my child get out of this because this is a situation where they're not in danger, they're doing okay, and they need to learn for themselves how to get themselves out of that situation, and they're never going to learn if they're not given the opportunity. You know, there's something to the process of going through pain or sorrow, isn't there? There's something about pain and sorrow. There's something about difficulty. There's something about being taught to trust the Lord through those times that's valuable, isn't there? Being taught to trust the Lord even when He doesn't give you the answer right away. Learning how to wait upon the Lord in patience for His will, for His leading, for His help, for His deliverance, or even for His timing on things. There's something to that, isn't there? I think that if we were to be able to see as the Lord sees, and we were, be, we were able to see how God's delaying, how God's asking us to wait, how the sorrows and the difficulties that we might walk through, how they forge in us that which God wants us to be. If we could see for just a minute, if we could pull back the curtain on God's will just for a minute and see how often God does this and how the results of God's faithful indulgence, allowing us to go through these sorrows, these pains, these difficulties, forges in us exactly what we need for the things that He's calling us to do. And learning to do this waiting, learning to hope in the Lord in quietness without complaint, this is a good thing. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 to 31, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. One of the most difficult things to do in the Christian life is hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. But often it is in these times of waiting that the process of strengthening occurs. It is in the process of waiting upon the Lord, of hoping in Him, of holding off my actions and my judgments until the time which the Lord moves and works. It is this process by which quite often we are strengthened. It is in this crucible that we often learn and grow the most. It is in these times of pruning, of waiting, the determination to hold fast to the Lord, that though I don't understand what's going on, I know that God is working, so I'm just going to be faithful with where I am today and trust the Lord with tomorrow, and there's strength to be found in that process. Those times when the Lord is hard to find, and so I have to seek Him just a little bit harder. And in that pressing into the Lord, in that seeking Him, there's a process of growth, which, because humans are so very human, really can't be done any other way. It is good for a man to, quiet, to, to quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Continuing in verses 27 through 30, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. He sitteth alone and keepeth silence, because he hath borne it upon him. He putteth his mouth in the dust, if so be there may be hope. He giveth his cheek to him that smiteth him. He is filled full with reproach. Jeremiah uses an important and practical earthly lesson to give us a perspective on this heavenly lesson that he taught in verse 26. He likens the process of having hope and quietly waiting for the salvation of the Lord to a man who is bearing his yoke in his youth. It's important for young men to grow through hardships. To learn the feeling of losing something he worked hard for or losing something he loved. It's important for a young man in his youth to feel the struggle of being brought to the edge of one's capabilities because only when you're brought to the edge of your capabilities are you able to know where that edge is. I had a teacher in college 
and he was in one of my computer science classes. And he took me to the very edge of my capacities. I worked harder in his class than I've worked in any class that I've ever had. He pushed so hard, he expected so much, he asked for so much, he pushed me and I got to the end of that class and I got my grades and I got my final and I looked at all of this and I said I never would have thought that I could possibly have done that. And I never would have known if I hadn't had someone push me to that limit. Maybe the frustration of being mistreated and overworked at an underpaying job for a cranky boss. You know, it can be good sometimes for a young man to experience something like that, can't it? To learn the value of work, to learn the value of compassion, even to learn the importance of making sacrifices, of having to bear a burden in an early stage in order to progress to where you want to be. To have that long-term vision that says, I'm going to bear the pain today, I'm going to bear the injustices today, and I'm going to bear the sorrows today, because through that sorrow comes that joy that I'm seeking. And if I'm going to get there, I have to go through this. That works endurance. That works a measure of of, of determination in a young man. Life is a hard teacher, but there are some things that you can only learn by doing. And to this end, we do not, or at least we should not, our society is today to its detriment, but we ought not shield our young men from these growing pains because those things are going to help him learn to use what he has for the good of himself and others, to appreciate what he has. It's going to mature him and this is the idea here. Just as it's good for a man to bear these burdens in his youth because these lessons will serve him for the rest of his life, Jeremiah illustrates this concept through verses 28, 29, and 30 through these three metaphors. He speaks of the man who puts his mouth in the dust. A picture of falling on his face in submission. It is good for a man to bear his yoke in his youth. It's good for a man every once in a while to sit alone and keep silence, to not, to not be the one to speak, to put his mouth in the dust, to submit himself to someone else, and to give his cheek to the man that smites him, to bear a measure of reproach. These things are good for a man. And this is the lesson that Jeremiah remembers in his grief. And then he translates into the spiritual. Sorrow, Pain, grief, loss, frustration, trial, pruning. These things are not wasted on those whom the Lord loves. They're not. These things can even in God's time be the very elements which God uses to make us what we need to be for Him. So Jeremiah continues. For the Lord will not cast off forever, verse 31 and 32. But though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitudes of his mercy. The affliction that comes upon God's people is brought in faithfulness. And that means that the affliction is a means to an end. When that end is reached, so too the time of patiently waiting gives way to salvation. God is not gleefully sitting in the heavens, we'll see this in a little bit, pouring out his fury upon anyone and everyone that crosses him. Much to the contrary, God's chastening, God's judgments, God's trials, God's pruning or purging, God's, God's refining process, these things are means to an end. And we know that because we know that God's mercies are new every morning, because we know that His faithfulness is great. And because of what we know, we can see Though we may not be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel, we know it's there. We know that there is a purpose to God's method. Now that end might come for any, in any number of ways. Maybe it's because I'm being chastened for sin. And that end will come when I finally humble myself. Maybe it has nothing to do with sin. And there's a lesson to be learned. Maybe you prayed for patience. Be careful doing that. That can be an interesting prayer to pray. Maybe you ask the Lord to grow you. Maybe you ask the Lord to give you, to take you to the next level. And then all of a sudden things start getting rough. Maybe you ask for that. But when you get to that next level, the purpose is accomplished. 
You see God in his faithfulness. You say, God is being faithful to me. I will endure this because the Lord is faithful. But the hope in which I can rest is that even in these afflictions, the Lord does not and will not cast off forever. But rather, according to the multitude of his mercies, which are as sure as the morning sunrise, God will have compassion upon his children, though sometimes he must first cause them grief. And remember the Israeli context to this. Judah has been taken into captivity. They have lost everything due to their rebellion against God. There's 5,000 of them perhaps left on earth and the promise of God is that there's coming a day when they, Judah, will turn to him and then he will turn their grief and their mourning into joy because there's a method to what God is doing. There's a purpose to it. And I know that because I know that it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. I know that his compassions fail not. I know that his mercies are new every morning. Great is God's faithfulness and I know that. I may not feel it right now, but I know it. I may not see it right now, but I know it. And do take note. This is how it needs to be. But also take note that this isn't exactly how God wants it to be. Verses 33 through 36. For he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men, to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the right of a man before the face of the Most High, to subvert a man in his cause, the Lord approveth not. God, do, God does not want to bring us suffering. It isn't the way God would choose to do these things if we would learn any other way. Just like with my children. It isn't my desire that I should have to afflict my children, discipline my children. It isn't my desire to see my children cry because I'm spanking them. It isn't my desire to see my children go through the difficulties that come with losing privileges, responsibilities, opportunities. That's never what I want for my children. It would be wonderful if my kindness and goodness to my children would simply be enough to cause them to align their hearts with me. But the fact of the matter is it doesn't work that way. And so I do what I must to bring my children into the place where they need to be. That is me being faithful to my children. Ezekiel 33.11 reminds us God speaking, he says, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? God says, I don't want to do this. This isn't what I want for you. But God is faithful, see. God takes no pleasure in judgment, but God is faithful. God has no glee in our sufferings, but God is faithful. And especially as we will consider toward the end of our time, the suffering of his children. God takes no pleasure in that, but God is faithful. If we could learn some other way, God would do it, but we can't because we're so human. Whether in judgment for sin or the loving process of purging, as Jesus said in John 15, every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, prunes it, that it may bring forth more fruit. That's how trees bring forth fruit. You want your trees to grow well. You want your bushes to grow well. You want your plants to grow well. You got to prune them back so that they can grow fuller, better, healthier. It's a counterintuitive process. Cut off the live stuff. But that is how things grow. No different with you and I. The stretching process of trial the difficulties of going through difficult times. This is faithfulness. Can you trust that? Can you believe that? You don't feel it. You're not sensing it. You don't understand it. Can you trust what you know above how you feel? Can you trust the faithfulness of the Lord in these things? They may not be fun, but they're very necessary because no matter how much God doesn't want to do these things, God gives us a triplet of actions 
of which the Lord does not approve, of which the Lord will not pass by, even in his willing affliction of men for their sin. It says God will not pass by those who seek to crush under the feet the innocent of the afflicted on earth. God will not pass by those who turn aside righteous judgments when it is within their power to do justice. God will not pass by a man who subverts other men's purposes and intents. These things the Lord will not pass by, the Lord does not approve of. And God says, look, I don't want to afflict you, but when I see these things, they must be dealt with. And like with Babylon, God may even use these evil things to bring about his purposes. He used Babylon and all of their evils to, to chasten Judah for their sin. But the follower of God whose hope is in the Lord can know better than he can know anything. More than the things he can see with his eyes or feel with his hands or taste with his mouth, he can know that God does not let these things pass by unnoticed. He can know that God in his faithfulness is doing what he's doing. And in this, Jeremiah turns his mind to the reality that even in the midst of grief, God is in control. So he asks in verses 37 through 39, Who is he that saith... And it cometh to pass when the Lord commandeth it not. Out of the mouth of the Most High proceedeth not evil and good. Wherefore doth a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? In light of this, in light of these things that we know, in light of the Lord's faithfulness, in light of, of God, uh, his incapacity to allow certain things to pass by him in his faithfulness, who can say that the things which are laid upon me are not under the control of the Most High God? How could I possibly convince myself that the things that are brought into my life are not under the control of God, are not within His complete sovereignty? Is it not within God's power just as much to bring upon man as evil as it is, uh, evil as it is to bring upon man good? These were the same words that Job spoke to his wife, were they not? Job lost his wealth, he lost his family, he lost his health, not for any sin, but only that the Lord might be glorified in him. Job's wife says, do you still stay faithful to the Lord in the midst of your suffering? Curse God and die. And Job replies in Job 2 verse 10, thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What, shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not Job sin with his lips. Is it our right to receive only good from God? Is it our right to, not re to never receive evil from the Lord? Evil there not being wickedness, but evil simply being negative circumstances? Is God obligated unto us only for good? Is God's goodness tied only to my perception of his goodness to me? So that when I perceive God is faltering in some measure of goodness, that means God is no longer good? Is that how this works? Is God's faithfulness dependent upon my happiness? Is God beholden to my desires, my circumstances, my perceptions, my thought processes? Surely not. Surely not. This being so then, if even a righteous man has no cause to complain when the Lord sees fit to take away everything that he has in this life, then by what right does a living man complain when he is brought into chastening for his sinful choices? When what has come upon him is entirely brought upon himself. And this leads Jeremiah to a renewed call unto alignment with the Lord. Verses 40 to 42. Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto God in the heavens. We have transgressed and have rebelled. Thou hast not pardoned. Indeed, if all of this is true, if the nation has been rebellious, if their punishment is warranted, if even among men such judgments are fully justified, then it would behoove the people to quit with their complaints and to start aligning with God to acknowledge the intended purpose of God's judgment and submit the faster they humble themselves before the Lord surely the sooner the Lord can bring about their salvation 
So Jeremiah calls and he says, let us search and try our ways. Let us search our own hearts. Let us try our ways. Let us put our own perspective, our own walk, our own decisions, our own thought processes. Let us put them to the test and see if what we're doing is right. Let us do a self-audit of our own ways. And in doing so, let us turn again to the Lord. I love the picture here. Poetically, he says, let us lift our heart with our hands unto, our, unto God in the heavens. One of the, na the, the nature of, of various of the offerings that would be given unto the Lord is that as they were given unto the Lord, they would lift them up into the air and they would, such as the wave offering, wave it before the Lord. Jeremiah says, let's do that with our hearts. Let's lift up our hearts unto the Lord. Let's get it as close to him as we can. Let's offer to the Lord our hearts. And let's see what he can do if we will only align with him. This, of course, is the very thing that God has always asked of them. Their heart. God is holding them accountable for their rebellion as it is his right to do. And so Jeremiah lists the Lord's judgments upon them again. Verses 43 to 47. Thou hast covered with anger and persecuted us. Thou hast slain, thou hast not pitied. Thou hast covered thyself with a cloud that our prayer should not pass through. Thou hast made us as an offscouring and a refuse in the midst of the people. All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Fear and a snare has come upon us. Desolation and destruction. God is covered with anger, he says, and persecuted so that the people have been destroyed. This, in this we see Jeremiah's uh, recounting of the proactive judgment of the Lord upon the nation. And then he says, God has covered himself with a cloud that the people's prayers have not been heeded. This is the natural consequence of their rebellion. I quoted the first half of Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2 today. Uh... Uh, I believe it was in, in my prayer. I'm trying to remember exactly what the context is that, I, that I, I quoted this. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But then it goes on to say, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear you. Jeremiah says the natural consequence of our rebellion is that a cloud has formed over us so that our prayers are not heeded. God has made them, he says, a refuse among the people. All that they had once been exalted over, now as enemies, their enemies see them as a shameful people, as a byword before the people. The enemies of Israel have gloried over them in a manner the likes of which God's people had never understood and certainly never thought would take place. And so he says, their days are now mired in fear and in desolation and in destruction. Such was the state of their judgment, the extension of the Lord's faithful chastening of the nation for their rebellion. And yet just as God is faithful to judge, as Jeremiah has already well expressed, the Lord will not cast off forever. But for this day, in the day that Jeremiah writes these words, he's a man of sorrow. Is he not? Verses 48 through 51, Jeremiah continues the mourning of his heart. Mine eye runneth down with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. Mine eye trickleth down and ceaseth not without any intermission till the Lord look down and behold from heaven mine eye affecteth mine heart because of all the daughters of my city. I want to take a moment here and highlight two things that can be true at once. Jeremiah's remembrance was able to bring him out of the despair of his grief. Out of that place where he felt as though the Lord was targeting him and that the Lord hated him and that the Lord was seeking to destroy him. He was brought out of that by a remembrance of the Lord's faithfulness while simultaneously he felt the tremendous weight and sorrow of the destruction that he was experiencing. Those two can be true at the same time. That though in his spirit and his mind he knows the faithfulness of the Lord and he has been renewed unto that hope of future days. Yet his eye, which hath seen this terrible destruction, has not failed to touch his heart because of what he saw all around him. Those can be true at once. They can coexist in a man. 
the human sorrow over the circumstances that are around him can combine with a true spiritual understanding that these things exist within the context of God's love, God's faithfulness, and God's goodness. Listen, just because you know of God's faithfulness and goodness, and even when you are fully trusting in it, that doesn't turn you into some heart of stone that cannot be affected, right? We said last week, when we orient ourselves rightly to the Word of God, then our feelings can be filtered through the Word of God and can be expressed properly. And Jeremiah is doing that here. He didn't stop crying simply because he remembered God's faithfulness, because he's still seeing his people suffer. He's still contemplating the destruction of his people. And this is not faithlessness. This is not sinfulness. This is, this is emotion, which God has given us, which is a part of the image of God in man. And in this context, that weeping gives way to peace in its time. That mourning, which is even perhaps an important part of the process of reconciling things to ourselves and to God, gives way to peace in God's time. If we keep our minds on faithfulness, the faithfulness of God. So Jeremiah wept for his people, and this is okay. Because though the sorrow is brought by the Lord in his faithfulness, the sorrow is very real. But thank God, he's also there to wipe away the tears. So we're coming back to Jeremiah here. Jeremiah calls the people under repentance. We know the people are not there yet, right? But Jeremiah himself, remember in this chapter, Jeremiah started saying, I feel attacked. I feel uh, um, despair. I feel abandoned. And then he recalled the Lord's faithfulness. And then he starts talking to Israel. He says, repent, come back, uh, check your ways, audit yourself. And now he's back with him, thinking about his own despair, thinking about his own sorrow. And he goes on in verses 52 to 57 to say this, Mine enemies chased me sore like a bird without cause. They have cut off my life in the dungeon and cast a stone upon me. Waters flowed over mine head. Then I said, I am cut off. I called upon thy name, O Lord, out of the low dungeon. Thou hast heard my voice. Hide not thine ear at my breathing, at my cry. Thou drewest near in the day that I called upon thee. Thou saidst, fear not. I have a hard time believing that Jeremiah is not thinking about when he was thrown into that mud pit right here and right now. That his enemies chased him without cause, that they cut off his life in the dungeon. He nearly died down there, didn't he? They cast stones upon him. They mocked him. Waters poured on his head into that mud pit as he sank into the mire. And he says, I'm cut off. I'm dead. I'm as good as dead. And he's perhaps there, perhaps thinking back to that time. We don't know which. We don't know the timetable of Lamentations. But he's there. And he says, as a testimony to the nation of Israel in their time of grief, he says, in the midst of this low dungeon that I was in, I cried out, and the Lord heard my voice. And you drew me near, and you said, don't be afraid. I love this. God had shut his ear to the nation because the nation had not humbled herself before him. But Jeremiah says, learn a lesson from me, Israel. When I was at my lowest, I called to the Lord and he drew me near. I humbled myself. I put my face in the dirt. He drew near. And he comforted me. And he said, fear not. And isn't that just like our God? The God who resists the proud, James 5 says, but gives grace to the humble. And as we would expect, this leads Jeremiah into a confidence and expectation that on the other side of this, God will be faithful to judge those who God has used to wreak havoc upon the nations around him. So Jeremiah falls into a, a sort of lamentation for the pagan lands around Israel, for their sin. 
and the expectation of their judgment. So he says in verses 58 through 66 as we finish the chapter, O Lord, thou hast pleaded the causes of my soul. Thou hast redeemed my life. Thinking back to when the Lord saved him. O Lord, thou hast seen my wrong. Judge thou my cause. Thou hast seen all their vengeance and all their imaginations against me. Thou hast heard their reproach, O Lord, and all their imaginations against me, the lips of those that rose up against me and their device against me all the day. Behold, they're sitting down and they're rising up. I am their music. Render unto them a recompense, O Lord, according to the work of their hand. Give them sorrow of heart, thy curse unto them. Persecute and destroy them in, the, in anger from under the heavens of the Lord. As we've seen before, so we see again, we see the remembrance that, that though God in his faithfulness has afflicted Jeremiah, that though God in his faithfulness is afflicting the nation of Israel, that doesn't mean that there is not coming a day when all will be made right. Whether that be God comforting the afflicted or whether that be God visiting affliction upon those who did wrong. Because God is faithful. And that leads us to a couple of points. I'm not going to say anything new in these points. We've covered it well in Jeremiah chapter, or in Lamentations chapter 3. But I want to bring New Testament principles into this concept. Number one, remember God's chastening is God's faithfulness. We know God is faithful. God has been good to us and he is good to us. We have, as Psalm 34 verse 8 said, tasted and seen that the Lord is good. As we considered last time God's goodness in good times and in bad, as we considered last time the necessity of subjecting our emotions, our feelings, and our perceptions to what we know from the Word of God and the character of God, let us never forget the goodness of God through His chastening hand. We know well, the well-traversed wisdom of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of His correction, for whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. Here we are called to a unique and an important perspective, one which undergirds an understanding of just what the love of God looks like. We speak of God's love, and we need to be careful that when we speak of God's love, we put it into a proper context. In any context of life, love is not something that is pandering or flippant or negligent or indulgent. Love does not ignore flaws. Love does not lie to protect feelings. In fact, we know on biblical authority what love is because 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 7 tells us what love is. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. If that is love, and if God is love, and if God loves you, how is God going to deal with you? How is God going to deal with you if this is love, and God loves you? Filter your circumstances, your actions, your behaviors, and God's response to you in love through these verses. What does it mean that God loves you? It certainly doesn't mean God is going to indulge your sin. It certainly doesn't mean that God is going to overlook your flaws. He's going to bear all things. He's going to believe all things. He's going to hope all things. He's going to endure all things. But he will never rejoice in iniquity. Never. He can't. He loves you too much. God's love will not be easily provoked, but it will not behave itself unseemly. Love is selfless. We define love here as a decision to do what is best for the object of one's love, regardless of self-interest or circumstances. God chastens in love, and whom he loves, he chastens. There would be nothing loving about God affirming our sin. There would be nothing loving about God allowing us to persist in our sin. And the most authoritative passage we have as it relates to God's church and chastening, of course, is Hebrews chapter 12. 
It was only a couple of months ago that we studied, we finished studying through Hebrews 11. And we walked a little bit into Hebrews 12. And we did so to conclude Paul's thoughts on the matter. Hebrews 11 calls for God's people to follow the example of tremendous legacy of faith found in the men and women of centuries that have gone by. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, we picked up with this thought. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. God's people are called to strive, to run this race with patience, endurance, to lay aside the weights, and that because the progenitor of our faith, the one who has gone before us, set this example. If Christ could love us even unto death, can we not love him unto some measure of bodily endurance? Christ redeemed us even unto blood, but you and I have not resisted unto blood against our sin. No matter what the seeming significance of the cost that we must count for Christ in this life, no matter what the seeming significance of the weights and the sins that we are called to lay behind, these must intrinsically pale in comparison to what Christ paid so that we might even do so. For he carried that payment even into the shedding of his own blood. bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows. And God help us in this endeavor. He helps us in this endeavor in a couple of ways. First, we know that God never gives us more than we can handle. We know that as far as temptations and trials are concerned. Leaving Hebrews 12 for just a moment, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. God has never allowed the world, the flesh, and the devil to bring into our path a temptation so severe that God has not given us the grace to endure it. So that James can rightly say that every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. God has never brought a trial. God has never brought a purging or a pruning into your life that is not so deep, so great, so, uh, so, so heavy that you cannot overcome it, that you cannot find your way through it, that God will not help you through it because God's grace is sufficient. But there's another way that God is faithful to help call us to shed the besetting weights of our sin. And that brings us back to chastening and that brings us back to Hebrews 12. Verses 5 through 11. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom his father chasteneth not? Whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards, illegitimate children, and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Paul quotes the very passage we considered in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. And he makes this point, that as we struggle against sin, a part of how God helps us lay aside these weights and the sins that so easily beset us, the, one of the ways that God gives us the grace to overcome, that he helps us overcome, 
is his hand of chastening. Purging, pruning, trials, chastening. Like a loving father who desires his son to do right, who desires his son to grow into a man, who desires his son to learn how to conduct himself properly. God will not fail. He cannot fail to give us consequences, to bring about chastening. In his love and his faithfulness, he will bring about those things that are necessary to make us what we need to be. And this is, make no mistake, a mark of God's love. In fact, Paul says, chastening is one of the primary evidences that you are in God's love. Chastening is one of the primary evidences that God has received you. For God is so faithful and so loving, He will not fail to chasten those that are His own. So much so, that if you find yourself not chastened by God when you're walking in rebellion, that if, you've, if you're not seeing God pushing you to higher heights, if you're not seeing God prune away at you, it is this you should fear. It is this that should concern you. If your Christian life is just kind of nothing, if there's nothing between you and the Lord, if, if there's no chastening and no growth, if there's no pruning and no purging and no trials and no growth and no alignment and no vibrancy and no life, that should be the thing that concerns you. Because God chastens His own. Paul says if you don't receive chastening for your sin, if, you don't, if God is not actively helping you overcome your sin, then maybe it's because you're not legitimate. Maybe it's because He has not received you. Because God is faithful to those He loves. Paul argues your fathers raised you in discipline. And he says, and they disciplined you after their own pleasure. They wanted you to wash your hands before meals. They wanted you to do this. They wanted you to do that. They wanted you to shut the lights off when you left a room. And so they chastened you unto conforming yourself to them. Right? I, I chasten my children for the things the Word of God says. I also chasten them for the things I expect of them. And if they don't do the things I expect of them, I am going to work those things into them by chastening. And Paul says, so your fathers have done this and you thank them for it. Though it be but for a time and that it be by their own pleasure, how much more should you be thanking God when He, in His pleasure, is conforming you to His image? You revere your fathers for their loving hand of chastening. Can you not then do the same for your heavenly Father? But all too often we cry and we wonder why God would do such things to us. As if God's chastening has wronged us. And you again have seen this in your children before, haven't you? Your discipline is turned on its head in their mind. You faithfully and lovingly chasten your children and instead of them seeing it as an extension of your love to them, they see it as proof that you hate them. And they get angry at you. And the worst part about this is not even just that they're angry at you, because you know that's just an emotion and it's going to go away, and then when they get hungry, they're going to come to you for their next meal, right? The worst part about it is that you know that if their heart is there, then they're probably not learning the lesson, right? And they're going to have to go through it again. Because they're not listening. Because they're not receiving what the chastening is intended to do. Because they're too busy being angry at you for the chastening to receive what the chastening is about. And that's the tragedy, isn't it? That you know that you're going to be there again. And in not too long. Because they're not listening. So it is with us and God that all too often we get so busy being confused or upset or angry at being chastened, being pruned, at being tried, at being pushed, at being brought through some measure of fire that we don't stop and say, why? What's the point? What's the object? As Jeremiah said this evening, search your heart. Maybe it's not sin. Job searched his heart. He didn't find any sin. Maybe it's something else. So Job says, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And God will continue for our profit that we might be partakers in his holiness. Maybe you're going through some things today.
and you don't understand them. Maybe, maybe you do. Maybe it's chastening for sin and you know it. And you're walking in rebellion because you're stubborn. Maybe you don't understand and you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And after last week, you've reoriented your perspective and you say, God, I know that you're faithful, but I still don't understand. but you haven't quite gotten to the point where you see what's going on as the faithfulness of God. You know God is faithful in the midst of it. But have you gotten to the point where you say, this is God's faithfulness? This time, this trial, this circumstance, this difficulty, this is God's faithfulness. This is, what, this, this is the expression of God's love to me. Let me maximize it. Let me take full advantage of it. Let me, let me learn everything. Let me glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And if we're wise, we will understand this, that no chastening in the moment is joyous. There's a lot of things in life that are hard in the moment. You need to get in shape. You're going to exercise. You're going you're gonna to cut, cut back your, your food consumption. You're going to change your diet. No, those things aren't fun but they work in you something good, right? Chasing our children isn't fun. It isn't joyous in the moment, but it works in them an expected end. No chasing for the present seems to be joyous. It's grievous. But afterward, it yields the fruit of righteousness to those that are exercised thereby. It is the Lord's faithfulness. Chastening is a means to an end. Chastening is an immediate effort unto long-term gains. And again, if we're wise, we'll know this to be true. And in those times of pain and in those times of sorrow, be they times of chastening or of testing or of trial, we can be joyful that God is doing His work in you and that through it all, God is faithful. Second point as we close. Sorrow is not sin. I wanted to put this one in here because in this chapter we see Jeremiah very sorrowful. And in the beginning of the chapter, before Jeremiah's remembrance, we see him in a measure of despair, which we perhaps could call sinful. We see him questioning God's goodness. We see him wondering if God is even there. And this path can lead, at the very least, can lead to a place of despair and depression which can only be described as sinful as it forsakes God's promises and turns one's mind selfishly inward. But even after Jeremiah's remembrance, we still see him pouring out tears before the Lord. And we're reminded that even among those whose hope rests in God, sorrow is a part of our lives. And whether I, in my feet of clay, listen to my emotions are, or not, whether I am bound by my emotions or my emotions are being led by the word of God, they still very much exist, don't they? Those emotions. Even when I'm able through God's grace to put my sorrows into proper context and acknowledge God's power over the circumstances that be and worship God in the midst of those circumstances, that does not mean they will not affect me. And it doesn't mean that they should not affect me. It's okay. Christians are not robots. My hope in God does not mean I can't be sad. I can simultaneously place all of my hope in God and weep for a loss of a loved one. I can simultaneously rest all of my fears upon the Lord and sorrow over the circumstances within which I find myself because no circumstance, no chastening for the moment seemeth to be joyous. It's grievous. These sorrows and these confidences are not mutually exclusive. And sometimes we as Christians can get the feeling that if something makes us sad, if something really hurts if we're really broken up over something, if something causes genuine pain or circumstances are really being difficult to bear emotionally, that somehow that means I don't have enough faith. As if, if I only had enough faith, these things wouldn't make me sad or cause me pain. But it just doesn't work that way, does it? Job commended all of the things to the Lord that he had in that day of sorrow. He lost his 
He lost 10 children on that day. He lost all of his wealth on that day. He commended it all to the Lord. He said, Naked came out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But do you know what he did before he said that? The Bible says, He rent his clothes. He shaved his head. Definitive signs of mourning. And if you think he did not shed a tear on that day, I think you're wrong. I don't know. Didn't say he cried. But he mourned. We know that. We know he mourned. David speaks of his sorrows often, does he not, in the Psalms. We know Jeremiah wept before the Lord often. Hannah wept before the Lord, imploring the Lord for a child. And these are not contradictions. God is good. His mercies are new every morning. His compassions fail not. He is ever faithful. Faithful to bless, faithful to chasten, faithful to forgive, faithful to love. If we can live in remembrance of that faithfulness, if we can submit to that faithfulness in all of its forms, including chastening and trial and purging and pruning, then even in the midst of life's sorrows and the weeping that may endure for a night, what we can know is that joy cometh in the morning. The sorrow of this life will influence us, but it need not ever overcome us. Sorrow will not turn to despair or depression because my hope is not in myself. My hope is not in my circumstances. My hope is not in my feelings. My hope is not in my perceptions. My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me. And this is the climax of this book of Lamenta Lamentations. This book called the book of Lamentations, but make no mistake, the focus on the book of the book is not Lamentation. It's God's faithfulness in the midst of of my lamentation. May God help us to see it, to know it, and to experience it by faith. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.